Easy Original. When we have time, I have to play you the intro to a podcast I just discovered, which is hilarious. Oh. It's just so high energy and their headlines are so fast. It's just very funny. All right, All right. let's get pumped. Okay, right. here we go. Hi, everybody. Welcome into WBZ, the week of September 24th. I'm Paula Evan. Last week of September. What the heck happened to September? I'm Leah Martin. I'm John Keller, and there's no way in hell I'm turning the heat on until October 15th. <laughs> no. He was stubborn. Hard and oh, fast rule. Although, luckily, I have heat. Yes. Knock wood. Yes. Thank you, God. Speaking of which. Because a lot of people in our area do not, mm-hmm. and they're not going to get the gas on, many of them, until, did I hear right, November 19th? Yes. That seems ambitious, by the way. So we, the first thing we're going to talk about is how badly, in the wake of the gas pipeline explosions, did Columbia gas? completely bungle the crisis response. Crisis expert Ashley McCown on utility and government response to this disaster. Paula and I talked with David Begno about the new documentary on CBSN about 12 months after Maria hit Puerto Rico. Where do things stand now? What has been the criticism of the Trump administration's response? We're going to get into that with David Begno. Incredible story. And then giving prisoners a second chance through education. This is something that's been around for a long time. Uh, whose interview is this? Yeah, we, we Liam and I both had yeah. the head of this consortium and a former prisoner who's mm. now a professor. I didn't know there was anything new under the sun in this field, but apparently there is. There is a, a new, new consortium. We're going to talk with them about that. And as you said, Paula, a prisoner who has been uh, really able to turn his life around because he got his degree while in prison. And, you know, you say to yourself, why should I care? Well, if you're a taxpayer, yeah. do you have any idea how expensive? $55,000 a year to keep Precisely. someone in prison. Yeah. And then we're also going to talk about the Patriots in mm. Last night, uh, on does Sunday it, night, does do, it feel like the beginning of the end? Does it feel like the beginning of the end? And we've said that a million times, and every time they've come through. So we're going to talk about whether or not the Patriots really are in trouble. Oh boy! So here we are, a couple of weeks after the horrendous debacle in the Merrimack Valley. The terrible gas explosions claimed one life, injured several. A terrible, terrible situation that has left thousands of people still in uh, something of a personal crisis, Uh, talking about mid-November before all the gas is restored. Some people think that's a bit much, but uh, I had the opportunity to talk with one of Boston's leading crisis management consultants, Ashley McCown, from the firm Solomon McCown, about the way this has been handled most notably by the utility itself, Columbia Gas and the parent company, Nysource, but also by the politicians who've been uh, jostling for screen time to keep the public informed throughout this. Have they handled it well or poorly? What's the blueprint for reacting to a situation like this? Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown. downtown, downtown. So, Ashley, when the horrendous situation first happened in the Merrimack Valley. As a crisis management expert, watching that first day unfold, what was going through your mind? Boy, uh, look, I think any of us that are in this line of work um, were were really surprised. You know, I remember watching broadcasters and all the local networks get the first statement um, from Columbia five hours after it happened. Um, 
So I think one of the things you really try to do in crisis response is not compound the severity of, of, a, of a disaster like that with poor communications. Good communication can really help um, in crisis management, and it can be incredibly damaging when it's not well done, as was the case in those early hours. Well, now, Columbia Gas is a subsidiary of Nysource, uh, which is a company that's a big utility company that's been around for a long time. How could they possibly not have understood the need to be present and to be part of the official response in the, in that first 24 hours? Yeah, no, I, look, I wondered, um, all of us wondered the very same thing. Um, you would hope that utilities, being in the line of work that they are, have agreed upon procedures and process if they did have procedures in place, were they followed um, or were they not? And how do you... Um, learn from that to have a better response next time. Ashley, one thing uh, I noticed that struck me as a a mini debacle wrapped up within all these early debacles, several days after when they finally opened up the uh, claim centers, uh, there was one claim center and hundreds and hundreds of people, I believe it was in Lawrence, hundreds and hundreds of people showed up waiting in long, long lines, and ultimately hundreds were turned away because they didn't have enough bodies there to process the paperwork for financial damage claims. Now, in the there was a huge uproar. In the days that followed, they opened up multiple other centers and poured in more staffing. But again, you know, how does something like this happen? Are they trying to get by on the cheap? Do they not understand several days afterward how many people are affected? Uh, uh, again, it just seems to me to speak to the fact that there was no plan at all. Yeah, and look, not being inside, you know, the, uh, the war room, so to speak, I, right. I don't know. But I think, you know, I, I will say when you have a disaster on, on this scale with thousands of people that are impacted, Although I feel like I've read that there's been gas explosions in other parts of the country, perhaps not on the scale of this one. But I think the magnitude of this um, has surprised a lot of people. And it speaks to having redundancies in systems and having backups of people. You know, And again, this is a place where utilities, certainly from a restoration standpoint, um, and I would think customer service, Share information resources. So when there's a big, you know, um, natural storm in one part of the country, often you see the trucks in New England driving down to the south and sure. first, um, you know, major power outages. We see trucks from Florida and the south and Midwest, and it's it's just part of what happens. And so I think um, scaling fast enough to meet demand um, was really really challenging. Now you mentioned the ten million dollar donation to the recovery fund for victims that uh, Columbia Gas made. Uh, I hopped online and was reading about the San Bruno uh, gas explosion disaster in 2010. That's a, a a small city right outside of San Francisco that was yeah, hit with a I fire. Yeah. I believe uh, close to 40 people were killed. Terrible, terrible tragedy. And um, the, uh, the company in, involved, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, was caught up in a, a, a major public relations debacle as time wore on. It came out that they rushed in with cash offers to residents. And you know that the cash offers came with, here, sign this release form. 
Right. So now we've seen the lawsuits already starting. I mean, that $10 million was certainly a welcome gesture, but that's chump change compared to what's potentially at stake here, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. I, I, I think the uh, the tally is going to rise certainly in the weeks to come. And, and who's to say that that's, you know, their final offer from a charitable standpoint, right? They're going to be dealing with the cost of litigation for years. They're going to be dealing with the cost of restoring power and making people whole again. Um, and on top of that, they may continue to choose to make, you know, donations to relief funds and other organizations that can help at the community level. So that was the first significant I suspect it will not be the last. Yeah. Now, let's shift our focus from the company to the politicians. Governor Baker, Lieutenant Governor Polito, they were right there. And the mayor of Lawrence uh, was and has continued to be front and center in all this. Uh, do, Do they get an A for their crisis management response, the politicians, or something less? I absolutely give them all an A um, for a few reasons. I think... Yes, they were physically on the scene. Um, they had, you know, the governor, mayor, and both the town managers in Andover, North Andover. They were present. They were very keyed into what their constituents needed. The governor was very assertive. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever recalled, because I mean, I remember being struck by it when he, it was the next day when he said, you know, he's going to put Eversource in charge of the response and not Columbia. I cannot recall another utility-focused disaster when that's happened before. So, he definitely was a man of action. Um, just the, the optics of having the governor, lieutenant governor at every briefing early on and in charge there over the weekends, I thought Dan Rivera was outstanding. Um, and all of them were also holding Columbia accountable and made that very clear from day one. Um, but, you know, for Dan Rivera and the town managers, their job is to get their businesses and residents as comfortable and restored as much, you know, as quickly as they can. And I think... There's a plan aspect of that, and then there's just being really in tune with your constituents and knowing what the most important things are to do, and they've done that. They followed both their hearts and their minds in a way that's been very, very effective. Just today, as we're recording this interview, Jay Gonzalez, the Democratic nominee for governor, is making a big stink about the paucity of gas line inspectors that the state has had on board in the past and how that might have led to or, or amounted to some form of negligence that led to this fiasco. Is there a, a, a sort of a crisis-type hazard in there for Baker and his administration? And if so, how should they handle it? My perspective is do that very, very carefully. Um, I think it's, you know, it is, it is dangerous and not always appropriate to try and leverage a tragedy of this scale um, for political gain. And so um, I think constituents will also look at that. So you think maybe Gonzalez's move is a little risky? I would be careful. Again, a life of loss. People were injured. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, fear and uncertainty are what get people to act. Um, and whether that's voting or, you know, seeking replacement of gas systems and updating and becoming more modern. So um, but I think that really needs to be thoughtfully and sensitively done because we're we're not quite two weeks out from when it happened and emotions are still raw. Um, so I would say all with an eye towards does it pass the sniff test and does this feel like it's, you know, it's an okay thing to do. Final thing, Ashley. I mean, just as a citizen, let alone a, a, a cynical, uh, uh, irritable reporter, uh, <laughs> 
the, the one thing that drives me absolutely crazy is when I feel I'm getting double talk or just flat out lied to uh, by elected officials, by corporate officials. I don't care who it is. Uh, if you've got bad news, my feeling is just give it to me straight. If you don't know something, say you don't know. Just don't yank my chain around, particularly in a situation where certainly, uh, you know, if you're one of the people affected by this, you're already... Uh, in a highly agitated state for, for perfectly understandable reasons. When, when you are called in to address a crisis, do you always counsel 100% candor? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and for a couple of reasons, Sean. Um, first of all, we just, we don't lie for clients. You know, we're just, that's, yep. you just don't do that. And people have a right to the truth and it is better to frame bad news, difficult news on your terms um, with a plan of action than to be caught in a lie. All goes back to credibility. And if you continue to not be truthful with the public and elected officials, you further damage your credibility when you're trying to do the right thing and respond and and turn this thing around. So tell the truth. Um, It's more painful to not and pay the price afterwards than it is to to do the right thing early on. And people know, you know, people know what passes a sniff test and what doesn't. What amazes me a lot of times in politics certainly is when the, the principles lie or fudge or conceal. And it's a story that's being swarmed over by mm-hmm. scores of reporters, by investigative units. Uh, you know, who do you think you're fooling? The truth is going to come out. Always. It always does. It always does. So be the one to put it out there, you know. Um, and, and, you know, if you do that consistently, you know, it's uh, in the hard time. It's much harder to do that when the chips are down and against you. But if you do it in the hard times and you're transparent, open, people acknowledge that and 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 will actually maybe respect you for the fact that you're willing to do the hard stuff. Ashley McCown, President Solomon McCown. Next time I really step in it, I'm calling you first, Ashley. <laughs> I'll wait for your call. It's possible now with new programs that customize Well, a year ago, Hurricane Maria slammed Puerto Rico. The hurricane hit the island with sustained winds of 155 miles an hour. It ruined the electrical grid, leaving people powerless for months, and caused an estimated $100 billion in damage. But even worse, it's now linked to to 3,000 deaths. That's according to research that was done later by George Washington University. CBS News correspondent David Begno was in Puerto Rico when the storm made landfall and has been back time and again covering the events and recovery there all year. He joins us now to talk about his documentary, Puerto Rico, The Exodus After Hurricane Maria. David Begno, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Liam and Paula, thank you for having me in Boston. Hi, everyone. David, you estimate you've been there maybe a dozen times. What is happening on the ground right now as they try to rebuild a year later? Well, listen, right now I'm trying to get an answer as to why enough money hasn't been given to the municipalities. That's one of many big issues right now. So the government has given billions of dollars to the central government of Puerto Rico, and it's the central government who then disseminates it to the municipalities. You would be shocked at how little has been given in terms of a percentage. Why is it taking so long? Well, full context. It's a lengthy process, involves six or seven steps, and because Puerto Rico filed for bankruptcy protection Mm -hmm. before Hurricane Maria, there's another four or five steps that are added to it. But at the end of the day, guys, I got to tell you, 
it is exhausting to sift through the excuses that you get when you call Puerto Rico and you say, why hasn't this happened? Why hasn't that happened? What is taking so darn long to make this happen? And it seems to just be a, a cascade of issues. There are people who are still waiting on the insurance companies to pay out. The governor is threatening to tell insurance companies, you can't operate on this island if you don't start paying these people. Mm. You've got 60,000 homes that are still covered in blue tarps. What's taking so long, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it, there are so many issues that just when people ask that question, it's almost overwhelming to try and answer it, answer it adequately. Right. It, th th this whole situation is so multi-layered, and one of the things that you've been yep. so vigilant about, which has been great uh, for people who follow you on Twitter and social media throughout the year, is continually tweeting context and explanations about why certain mm. things are happening. Let's just talk about this right now. It's estimated nearly yeah. half of the people who have left so far are under 24 years old. Of course, you need mm. that demographic anywhere just to be a labor force. First of all, why do people tell you they are fleeing? And are some of them choosing to stay? A lot of them are, and actually in the documentary, you will see what happened. We, we got to dinner, we got together and had some food with a group of uh, young professionals, really impressive people. And I was taken aback by some of the things they said. You know, so often we who live on the mainland assume that Puerto Ricans would want to be a state, right? Because if you hear the governor, he supports statehood. But actually, when I talked to young people, a lot of them said, mm, I don't know if I want more U.S. government. I don't know if I want to be a state. Because you know what? Being a commonwealth and a colony of the United States has kind of been disastrous for us in ways that they feel like second-class citizens. They don't get some of the same funding that the states get. Uh, they can't vote for president. They don't have representation in the Congress, at least voting representation. So I don't know that I want to be a state. That kind of surprised me. You just assume you go there and you're like, well, if you become a state, you're going to get a ton more resources. Um, why do people leave? Because they feel so desperate. In our documentary, you'll hear from Damaris. And Damaris is a single mom. She's got a daughter named Aliyah who's adorable. But Damaris decided after 10 months of the hurricane, it was worth it to leave an elderly mother and a bedridden father to go to Orlando where she had no job lined up, no school picked out for Aliyah only a room that a friend was offering. Mm. And that was worth it to her because it was that bad on the island that she thought, I got to leave. And at the end of the day, guys, look, Paul and Liam, if, if, if that keeps happening, it threatens to change the face of Puerto Rico forever. Mm. I gave the commencement address at the Polytechnic University of Puerto Rico. And for every hand I shook that the person said, I'm staying, there were at least two others that said, I'm leaving. And the estimates are, as you said, about 200,000 people have left. Boston right. Public Schools here took in more than 50 students who were displaced from Maria. Do you think the people who resettled here in Boston and Florida and New York around the country will ever go back? Uh, listen, so talking about the students, and I'm glad you brought that up, roughly 39,000 did not re-enroll this school year. So they're somewhere on the mainland, Boston, Orlando, Chicago, Los Angeles. Uh, will they go back? Everyone that I've asked has started the, I've asked the question and they start the answer like this, I'd love to, I'd like to. But I don't know if I can, mm -hmm. because when you come to the mainland and you get that taste of more resources, more support, a better paying job, a better school, in your opinion, it's, it's hard to walk away from that. However, every Puerto Rican I've talked to is so proud of that island. They love it so much, even in the condition that it's in. They love it so much that, yes, they would like to go back. What's the feeling on the ground there about whether or not they're being treated fairly as Americans? Let me tell you what I get. Not surprised. 
Mm. Not surprised. Not surprised mm. Harvey's getting more than us. Not surprised Harvey got more resources than us for a myriad of reasons, guys. One of them being it's easier to get resources to Houston. Sure. Not right. as hard to get it's it to an, island. to an island. Okay, we get that, right? That That's the the context that everybody can appreciate. Right. Property but, values but are probably a little lower on Puerto Rico than Houston, right? Might be a factor. Right. To, ab, ab, absolutely. But at the end of the day, I remember Jeffrey Buchanan. The general who led the federal troops in Puerto Rico sitting down with me and be, really being reflective and I, I was sort of hammering him on, on the slow response and, and nobody likes to admit a slow response and I'll never forget he said to me, you know what David, I could have parachuted men out of airplanes just like I did in Baghdad and maybe I should have done it. Mm. And I thought that was one of the most honest responses that I got from anybody who had any authority on the island. Right? Yeah. Was maybe we should have done that because they didn't get there as fast as they arguably should have or maybe wanted to. Right. I'm curious about the death toll question when the president sent out yep. that tweet saying that he found it hard to believe that the number jumped from 68 to 3,000 after the George mm -hmm. Washington study. What did people in Puerto Rico tell you in reaction to that? They, they were incensed. They were incensed. Listen, I've watched Puerto Ricans react to the president throwing paper towels, handing out flashlights, saying, you don't need this, whether he was joking or not. There was something about that death toll that was a final straw for people. Mm -hmm. uh, and quite frankly, I have never seen the governor of Puerto Rico be more direct and sort of stern toward the president as he has regarding the death toll and the president's rejection to the number estimated by George Washington University. I think you're starting to see a bit of a turn. Listen, the governor needs the president. I've got three sources within the governor's administration who has said to me he made a conscious decision not to criticize that man because there is too much to lose if he isolates the president. What would be the most helpful thing to do? Is it tourism on the island? Is it just donating money? So let me, let me tell you what I've always told everyone. It is not my place to tell you how to donate your time or your money. But let me say this. I think we can donate our attention. Puerto Ricans have said to me for so long, what we want is to be heard. We want to know that you hear me and that what I have to say matters. So what I think our obligation is, and I don't give my opinion very often, but what I think our obligation is right now is to make sure that we listen, that we acknowledge, and that we follow what's going on there because they need attention more than anything. As for where can you donate, look, there are tons of wonderful organizations and I would encourage you to find them online. Uh, tourism, by the way, is returning. Streets are clearer, more traffic lights are working. You can't tell the story of Puerto Rico without talking about the good. There is some good that's being done. And right? it's such a beautiful but, place. But, oh, absolutely. Oh, it is, it is. In fact, tomorrow morning on, on CBS this morning, we have a, a, um, a story about Vieques, which is a stunning island, right? Just off the uh, coast of Puerto Rico. It's a part of Puerto Rico. But man, I tell you, they have some immense struggles that are happening there. And in fact, Puerto Rico, the exodus after Hurricane Maria on CBSN. This is the CBS News digital streaming channel. David Begno, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you're doing down there to keep people informed about what's happening. Thank you, David. You both have been a very important part of keeping this story in the news, so I thank you. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated fact-finding team. So that's our interview with David Begno. The documentary, by the way, if you can pull it up there, Jonathan, is Puerto Rico, The Exodus After Hurricane Maria. It's a CBSN original, which is CBS News's uh, streaming digital service now. And we will tweet a link from our Twitter handle, Studio BZ Pod. So you can just click on that and watch it. And one of the things you and I were talking about, Paula, mm. after we talked with David Begno is how 
he is in a way kind of pioneering or at least a symptom of this new type of journalism. Well, I just found it so interesting watching him throughout the year because, of course, I follow David and I just think he's such an engaging reporter. Mm. But also his use of social media kind of took this particular story to a new place. And it made me think watching, I, you know, didn't think of it in the moment. But now that you look back over 12 months, even though, as he says, he didn't have enough time on CBS Evening News or CBS This Morning to do more than a two or two and a half minute hit, he throughout the year kept checking in with his contacts in Puerto Rico, updating the electricity numbers. Uh, He is very... Um, adamant that he's a reporter. He didn't take sides. He didn't call anybody evil or good. He did not draw conclusions. He just kept going back and updating information. And for people who followed that story closely, certainly people who have emigrated from Puerto Rico to the mainland over the years who wanted constant updates, it just struck me that he's kind of pioneering a new version of journalism where you can go see what that reporter or journalist is doing on their own. In real time. Beyond their own broadcast outlet or publication. And in real time, there was a several month stretch when he every single day would update how many people were left without power. Yes. And as a result of that, he he developed relationships with FEMA. He developed relationships with the Puerto Rican government, with the utilities, and was able to get really good access to information. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, you know, he's kind of uh, melding the the old form of journalism, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, making sure you do your two minutes every night on TV and making sure that you're Mm -hmm. giving full context with this new age of constant updates. Right. But one of the things that he has maintained throughout the whole thing is, I want to make sure you have full context. So yes, yes, FEMA did provide more water and food than they have for any other storm ever, but they also had major failings. They didn't mm-hmm. have a single tarp on the island, as he said, before right. the storm hit. Right. They were late to get there. They didn't necessarily anticipate the, the real need that was going to be on the island. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a, an element of advocacy journalism. And I don't know if he would necessarily want to call it that, but where he'll he'll look at a particular family and go, this family has been however many days without power. Here's where they are. He would then hear oh, from them, okay. then contact the government and say, just so you know, this family is without power. Yeah. It's an elderly man. He has medical issues, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And he would kind of work in a in a strange, still objective way to make sure that that family got their power people back. Just it's been very aware interesting to see that. him do that. It yeah. is. And it sort of goes back to the old Tip O'Neill you know, if all politics is local, all news is local, sure. certainly in an emergency situation like that. So mm-hmm. hats off to David. And the documentary is fantastic. And again, you can find it, Studio BZ Pod, our Twitter handle. We'll make sure that the link is up there. Okay, let's look at it. Put it online. While the U.S. prison population has been steadily declining since 2008, the incarceration rate in America is still the highest in the world. There's a new consortium here in Massachusetts hoping to help bring that number down by educating prisoners. And joining us is one of the directors of the Educational Justice Institute at MIT, Carol Cafferty, and Jose Bo, a former inmate who got his degree while in prison and is now a professor himself. Jose and Carol, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for, thank having, you for us. having us. Thank you. Tell us, Carol, what is this consortium. It's a group of colleges getting together to try to improve services to uh, uh, inmates. What is the goal of the consortium and what is the consortium? So we received a grant from the Vera Institute of Justice and the Mellon Foundation. And the purpose of the grant was to create a consortium of higher education institutions to provide post-secondary career and technical assistance programming and education for incarcerated men and women in Massachusetts. And Jose, you served in prison for 12 years. Yes. How did you find yourself there? 
Well, I was uh, a young 23-year-old man, and I got caught up in the uh, mandatory minimum uh, monster that was, you know, swallowing up a lot of people. A lot of my time growing up was spent in prison, uh, frankly, in the prison system and the jail system. And while you were there, you managed to get your degree at BU. How did that come about? You know, I was really just fortunate um, beyond means. Uh, when I went to the University of Boston, um, a Boston University, rather, in MCI Norfolk, that prison was one of the very few in the nation, frankly, that had a, a university in it. So I was very fortunate when I graduated. I was a, a class of 10 uh, men out of mm -hmm. 10,000 incarcerated people in, wow. the, in Massachusetts. So Jose is now a professor at Holyoke College. He teaches criminal justice. Mm. And he is the kind of success story that people want to see from a great program like this. But only 20% of inmates have access to a post-secondary education. Uh, so is this typical of what happens when an inmate is exposed to Absolutely. Education? You know, it provides them the opportunity to reach their, their full potential and have a transformative experience. The Rand Corporation um, conducted a study, and they concluded that men and women who have been exposed to post-secondary education while incarcerated are 43% less likely to reoffend. Mm. So it's pretty powerful. Yeah. And it was for Jose. Um, so many people who are in prison can't afford a post-secondary education. The federal government bars inmates from getting federal Pell Grants. Talk about the challenges of being able to afford a program like this. And to this point, how have universities been able to make this happen? We're hoping that with this consortium and all of the stakeholders involved, they'll be able to share more resources and mm -hmm. provide more funding opportunities for this to happen. Talk about what this meant to you. You know, how important this was in your life. You know, this was a huge turning point in my life um, when I knew that I could receive um, a piece of paper, which was the degree that would put me on even footing with uh, other citizens once you, we get out. Because we know that the punishment doesn't usually end w when you get out, the day you get out. There's mm -hmm. um, stigma, and it's difficult sometimes to get jobs. It's difficult sometimes to get um, housing. And just that piece of paper lets uh, accuse other people into the fact that, you know, you've studied, you've, you've kind of done what you need to do. Um, to be successful in society. But I knew I wanted to get something more out of prison than just time. I wanted to do something better. And I was fortunate, really lucky, that there was one prison. And now the opportunity to have 20 prisons in, in, in the state of Massachusetts is just going to create a ripple effect um, where, you know, the men who usually come out of prisons, they come out to the very neighborhoods that sometimes where we did the very harm is where we come out and try to heal. Mm. So and that's what I'm hoping and I'm expecting uh, from this consortium, just a, a group of people, men and women, who then come out and, and like I said, heal the very uh, harm mm. they've sometimes um, been what a was part your, of. What was your path once you got out of prison? How did you find your way to Holyoke and eventually now becoming an instructor yourself? Things weren't easy. Um, I had a bachelor's degree. I was a summa cum laude with a 3.98 mm. GPA, and I was collecting um, cans on the street. That's, you know, and my main thing was if I can stay out of trouble long enough, this degree is going to pan out. I ended up working with an at-risk youth program um, called ROCA in Springfield, and they're out here in Chelsea as well, a really good program. Um, and that started my human services career. And then just from there, I've, I've continued working with, with young people, um, people in, in, in addiction, um, and now um, young people wanting to be police officers and correctional officers. Yeah, what do you tell your students about it in criminal justice? You know, I like to spring it on them. Some of them may find out now, <laughs> um, maybe halfway through the semester. I, I, I like to be, you know, because I start the semester as any other professor would, with edu education and 
um, with the with the context of, of of the work, so that when I do reveal myself, I am just another professor. I've already set that tone, and mm-hmm. many of them um, really respect that I shared that with them. And and the class are uh, classes are usually much different than, at least from what they tell me, are much different from some of their other professors. And classes. I'm sure they respect how far you have come since you were in prison, Carol. When you see a person like Jose who was in prison and was able to get a degree and has now come this far. What does that tell you about your goals and the goals of this consortium? Well, it really reinforces our our intentions with this consortium, and it's a fantastic return on investment because he's such a success story. And it's just another way to provide a vehicle for people to transform their lives. I'm going to be a devil's advocate for a minute (laughs) because you know there are people watching who think, oh, that's great. Mm. So these people who have landed in prison are being given an education Mm. when I can't afford to send my son or daughter Mm. to get an undergraduate degree. What's your answer to people who might look at it that way? Yes, I understand why people would look at it that way. Um, You know, but it's like I had just mentioned, it's a great return on investment because it costs us annually $55,000 a year in Massachusetts to incarcerate someone. Mm. So um, if we, if if they leave the facility and they don't re-offend, we've just saved quite a bit of money, but also it doesn't affect student funding that we have for non-incarcerated students. It's, they're two different um, entities, and it's, it's a very good investment. Remember, to, to come back, you have to commit a crime. So if you stay out, you never committed that crime, that's one less survivor or victim of a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in our best interest that people don't continue to commit crimes. Jose Bo of Holyoke College, Carol Cafferty of this new consortium at MIT. Thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank Thank you for having us. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. A little while, I guess, deep into the second quarter of the Patriots-Lions game last night, the mood in my house became really bleak. It got a little grim. I, they don't look good. The Patriots don't look good. They lost big to the Lions last night. Yet, we've seen this script before. They lost terribly to Kansas City a few years ago, went on to go to the Super Bowl. Last year, they started out very badly, went to the Super Bowl, and lost in the Super Bowl. The one thing that does, I will say, feel a little different about this year is the amount of talent that they lost. Danny Amendola went to the Mm -hmm. Dolphins. They lost Malcolm Butler. They lost Deion Lewis. They lost uh, uh, Brandon Cooks, their top receiver. So, and Edelman has yeah. been out for the first four right. games because of the right. PED suspension. So you feel and like does, even if Edelman came back, it wouldn't make that big of a no, difference? No, I was just watching them last night, and I thought, who's other than Brady and Gronk, who are the stars of this team? And they, they, There is no star. They don't have a next-gear type guy. I am genuinely concerned about where it's going to go, but I will say when Edelman comes back and if Josh Gordon turns out to be the real deal as the receiver that they just picked up, then I think they'll be in okay shape. I don't know. I'm depressed. I'm depressed. I mean, keep in mind now, you youngsters, I've been following the Pats since the early 1960s. (laughs) They were the Boston Patriots. Yes. So I know what crappy, dead-ass football looks like (laughs) here in New England. We suffered with it for decades before this golden age. Mm. And uh, keep in mind, with that infamous game where they were routed by the Chiefs on national TV, and everybody said, uh, the the idiot pundits on ESPN said, well, that's it. Tom Brady's had jumped the shark. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, we're proven to be badly wrong. That was a case of a, a good team 
that was underperforming? Really amped up. No, the, the Chiefs. Oh, I got you. Yep, coming yep, yep. out and basically kicking their butts and mm-hmm. the Pats having a, a slow start. The uh, Last night was a case of a demonstrably crappy team. The Lions. The Lions yeah. stepping up and oh, to, yeah. to see Dante Hightower dragging that bum leg around yeah. the field. Yep. Is just uh, heartbreaking good. to see. They maybe they just don't have the talent this year. Yeah, yeah. I gotta say, our sports producer Joe Giza, who is a legend inside the building, <laughs> yeah. tweeted, "I'm sure the Patriots will turn it around because they always do. But keep in mind, someday they won't. Right. We just don't know when it will end, and don't won't know until it happens. The 49ers were always good when I was growing up. Until finally, they weren't. And Levin Reed says." Uh, I agree, but I will say this. This does feel like teams are finally pulling on the cape and the Pats are having trouble fighting back, hmm. that they're yanking on that cape. Uh, the one thing I'll say is I don't think the dynasty is over until Brady and Belichick are gone. I didn't see anything from Brady particularly last night that made him look like he's out of his element. Or I, I know his numbers were terrible, but I think that was more so the fact they almost never had the ball. Mm-hmm. The Lions controlled the time of possession. We had a couple of and bad Br- decisions. Brady, Brady's arm looks fine. I didn't notice anything with that. I he doesn't have any, he he just has no one to throw. Get he's, open. he's trying to throw it to Dorsett. They and can't get no. open. This mix of guys, other than Gronk, there's no one on the team that's, that's at that next level. Speaking of Gronk, you know what didn't feel good right after the game was to hear Gronk admit that when he was threatened with being traded to the Lions mm. over this year, right. that he threatened retirement and said, Brady's my quarterback, I only want to work with Tom Brady. Yeah. That just feels like something no Patriots player would ever say right. or admit to before I do think now. there are some wounds here between Belichick and Brady and maybe some of the rest of the team as well that people are have been ignoring because they went to the Super Bowl last year, they almost won it. But I do think there are some wounds that might be coming into play here. Brady didn't look, I will say, he looked kind of dejected last night. The way he kept throwing the helmet, he looked exasperated as if, I can't do everything. I can't be everything all the time. I was disturbed. I agree with you completely. I was disturbed by Belichick's body language. Mm. Very stoic. Just as if, oh, well, whatever. We're getting our butts kicked. We look look awful. We look poorly coached. Mm. And that's the second game this season. They had a 12-man on the field call at one point where I thought, I've never seen that. Never seen that. And there was Matt Patricia on the other sideline. And, you know, keep in mind, I mean, we, we, they've had such a long sustained period of excellence that we sort of take it for granted that we're going to see that every time and I notice this in all sports you know you can have the greatest talent but unless you have that psychological edge and you're mentally tough you're probably not going to win all all through over the years there have been many times when the Pats didn't necessarily have the best talent the first Super Bowl team was supposed to be little more than an appetizer for the the greatest show on turf. Remember that the St. Louis Rams, but they wanted it more. They were hungrier. They were better coached. They were more aggressive. It just feels like with all that's gone on, Belichick feuding with Brady, with Kraft, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that something's been lost there. You're right, John and Liam. You just said it a few minutes ago. Am I wrong about this? In years past, when Brady was always sort of the starry-eyed kid. Uh, encouraging his teammates on the sideline mm-hmm. and yelling at them. It was in an encouraging way. Yeah. Right. His yelling has turned distinctly negative yeah. in a way that I have not observed There have been before. past seasons, though, I feel like, where Brady has been 
disappointed with what is surrounding him. I remember the, the, the season after they lost Randy Moss, he seemed really disappointed with that the team wasn't able to keep him. And I, so I think if Josh Gordon turns out to be the real deal, you get Edelman back, maybe they make another move. I still think they're an 11-5 and five type team. They go to the playoffs. The division's not great, although now the Dolphins are 3-0. and I still think they're a playoff team, but I do think something is a little different this year. Well, look, we'll know a lot more after Sunday when the Dolphins come yeah. in. If we can't at least push them to the wall, if not beat them, that's a major warning sign. But, you know, uh, keep in mind, all throughout this incredible dynasty, what's the average winning margin in Super Bowls for the Pats? About oh, yeah. four three. points? Three or four points. Three or four yeah. points. They've they eked it out, out almost <laughs> every time. And... After the first four games, Belichick always makes adjustments that then make the rest of the season seem, oh, there they are. And even in the 16-0 season when we looked like just, you know, we were head and shoulders above everyone, we all know what happened in the Super Bowl. So the gap between the Pats and the also-rans has never been that wide. And for all the reasons we're talking about, it may have, I hate to say it, closed for good. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not going to be one of those idiot pundits I referenced before and write them off, but it, it does look tough I want right to wait till six or seven games in, see what the record is, see how they look, then I'll make If the Dolphins wipe the floor with them in Gillette on Sunday— I'll admit I'll be anxious. I may be, uh, yeah. I may be yeah. strapping on yeah. the life preserver, yeah. yeah. Home losses are going to hurt. I know. Let's wrap it up. That's it. You're okay. bored. Okay. You're so bored. I know. Jonathan's like, wow. and it's a wrap. He's thinking um, these idiots care about this. Jonathan Case does not love the that's sports the one games. With the, the, the brown ball. That's the yeah, brown ball. Yeah. Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. Well, we got a lot in there. We, we did. It's unbelievable. 30 pounds of great content <laughs> in a 20-pound bag. That's right. As always. <laughs> and uh, looking at everything we talked about this week, it all comes down to competence, right? In competence. Every single one of these areas. And that is, unfortunately, <laughs> in short supply. It does seem that way. Yeah. So uh, it's been fun. Uh, if you're a first-time listener to Studio BC, mm-hmm. glad to have you aboard. Yeah, welcome. Let us know what you think. You can reach me by email at keller at wbctv.com or hit me up with my Twitter handle at Keller at Large. I am Martin at cbs.com. That's how you can email me. Send your hate mail, please. And my Twitter handle is at Liam WBZ. And I am P. Evan at cbs.com. We'd love to hear your comments. Your PM Evan. So um, I have both. Oh, you have both? Saying, yeah. I would send a PM I tried Evan. to streamline it and just go to P. Evan. Someday one <laughs> okay, of the Okay, I'm going to start sending it to P. Evan. And don't forget the podcast has, has yes, its own Twitter pod, handle. And I'm at Paula Evan WBZ. Yeah. Or you can tweet at Studio BZ Pod, yeah. and we will get back well, to you. Well, the podcast will get back to the you podcast, there. podcast, as it were, will get back <laughs> to you. Jonathan will get back yes. to you. If it's shaken no, it's, off it's the hangover the from the podcast. Right. But in the meantime, <laughs> we'll end with... We'll, we'll be, be seeing you. you. Yay. People love that. Do they? I've heard on the street people come up and say... Don't change anything about the end. We love Show the me proof of that. <laughs> yes. I will.